bonjour and welcome to another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, you will learn how to use user-centered design uh, so you can stop guessing and start providing the right thing at the right time to the right people. Um, my guest today has typed her first line of code six years before I was born. And she believes in digital first marketing. Uh, she's a prolific entrepreneur. She's founded many like website and de uh, web design and dev shop, SEO, digital marketing agencies. And she's now the president and partner at Kickpoint, a digital marketing agency based in Alberta, Canada. She's been nominated as the SEO speaker of the year in 2018 by Search Engine Land. She lives with her wife and three cats who have 2.5 tails between them. That's something I need to know <laughs> more about. And it's yeah. funny because in her spare time, she yells at American football players what I would, why, while I would be yelling at rugby players. Uh, so we have a lot in common, it seems. Um, so Dana Ditamoso, let's see what you got and let's get mm -hmm. started. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's horrifying to know that I was coding before you were born. That's... <laughs> great way to start that off <laughs> yeah yeah it, it's a great way to make you feel good right it's like yeah totally yeah i feel awesome i'll go run a marathon later it's, it's great yeah <laughs> right but yes and that shows me as well that i never i always try to code like when i was young i remember like trying to code or like trying to design in photoshop and trying mm -hmm. to do this kind of stuff i never managed to do it ever i used to follow tutorials and then never did it properly so mm -hmm. You see, that's the, the thing you're much better uh, at me in doing. And you did that six years before I was even here. So, but thanks for having me. Thanks for spending the time to talk to me today. So we're going to talk about user-centered design. And it feels like this term, like user-centered design or conversion rate optimization or growth hacking, all of those kind of terms are like thrown out everywhere, right? In the marketing mm -hmm. field. And it doesn't seem like no one really understand what it truly means. So... From your own definition, what, what does it mean, user-centered design? What is actually, what is it about? User-centered design to us, and I don't even like the term user. Uh, I prefer to call it, say, customer or client-centered, uh, depending upon you know, what you call the people you're selling stuff to, uh, is the idea that you're providing the right experience at the right time to the right people. And that requires more than just, say, growth hacking, which, I mean, in particular, I really don't like the phrase growth hacking. I feel like that's just marketing without a strategy. You're just trying stuff and seeing if it Ooh, works. And I find it, nice. I know, go ahead and tweet at me about it. That's no, no, fine. No, I agree with you. I like it. <laughs> I know listeners will like it as well. Yeah, I, I find it really frustrating. Actually, I remember, if we're talking about history, uh, I remember when growth hacking was first you know, invented as a term. And the blog posts, I remember reading it in my office and saying, this is ridiculous. This is just marketing. This is what we've been doing all along. And now you're going to call it growth hacking. And ever since then, I've been annoyed at it. And I feel like it's a way to dress up a term, which is just just put in the work and just do the work. And there's no silver bullets. And user-centered design is a lot of work. It's not something where you flip a switch or you buy a tool and then magically you're providing better experiences to your customers. It means you actually have to listen and start responding to people. And in particular, you have to respond to people who aren't like you. And that is a really difficult thing for a lot of people to put themselves in someone else's shoes, not just in a, oh, well, I guess if I was, you know, a 60 year old woman, this is what I would want to do, but really understanding 
what your product or service is going to do for those people. What sort of, um, there's a great concept of jobs to be done, which Claire Sellentrop talks a lot about in terms of when you're thinking about your personas and what are the jobs they need to have done. But then when the sale is done, they still have jobs. So it isn't just serving them in the pre-sale cycle, but it's during the sale, after the sale, even if they leave you as a customer, you know, what are you doing to make sure you're serving them at every stage? And it is definitely a service type. It's it's a, a you're providing a service to people in many different ways, and your marketing should also serve people and their needs. And I think that that's a phrase we often talk about where marketing serves people, but we don't really think about what that word serves means. It's, you know, like you're at a restaurant and you order something and the waiter comes by with something totally different. That surprise, that's growth hacking. No, that's, <laughs> nobody would want that. You know, or another great example that I give of user-centered design is, let's say, for example, you look up on Google Maps how to get somewhere. You're in an unfamiliar city and Google Maps starts giving you directions. And then halfway through, it says, you know, this trip has been sponsored by the San Francisco Department of Tourism. And they take you past the Golden Gate Bridge. They take you past Coit Tower, they take all these different landmarks. And then you're at your destination. But you had to go through all those different steps to get there. Obviously, that was a terrible user experience. Google doesn't do that. I'm sure that at some point someone offered them a whole bunch of money to pay extra to make sure all, you know, routes went past a McDonald's, for example, and would play the ad at that time. But Google hasn't done that because that wouldn't be serving their customers. And so sometimes it means making the hard decisions and maybe turning away from some money to make sure that you're providing the right product. And really, Google Maps' dominance in the marketplace shows that they have the right data, but they're doing the right things with it. I can't seem to understand how else companies and marketers and designers and, and all of those people are supposed to build experiences or do marketing any other way than what you just described, right? Mm -hmm. And maybe because I'm very biased, I have strong beliefs about marketing, as you might guess. And I've talked mm -hmm. to many uh, smart marketers like yourself who believe in the same thing. So I struggle to understand what mm -hmm. else are they supposed to do bar providing the right thing to the right people at the right time. So we, we talked about growth hacking a bit as something that annoys you as a concept, which I completely uh, agree with. But what are, what alternatives are people currently doing that is not user-centered design? Like what other stuff are they doing? I find that a lot of people, particularly at larger organizations, so the bigger the organization is, the more layers of crap you have to get through in order to get to the top. And that means that everyone's in their own little silos. And so one department is doing something and not talking to another department, for example. So we were just speaking with a client, for example, who's a home builder. And they have a huge situation where they have a department that's post-sale. Uh, and they're called the warranty department, not the customer care department. So it's already not the great phrase for it. And there's only two people. And the, this company sells way more houses than two people can handle. And you know what? In new home builds, stuff goes wrong. That's just how it is. Not every house is going to be perfect. That's okay. We accept that. But you should go and fix the problem. And because this team is wildly understaffed, they aren't able to make any decisions. They have to check with the general manager before they do everything. So there's all this um, institutional just crud that's built up that prevents these people from doing a good job. And so this department has huge turnover. So nobody stays. So nobody knows what's going on. You have to train new people all the time. It's basically a money losing part of the organization, which means that their reviews are tanking. So now marketing's in trouble because they have bad reviews on Google. Well, marketing isn't allowed to comment about anything that's going on in the warranty department because that's <laughs> the warranty department's problem, right? So this is a perfect example of where if everybody just sat in a room and agreed that we're just going to cut out the political crap and we're going to actually deal with this problem, you could get there. But at many organizations, that's really difficult. 
particularly if there is a founder who's still CEO, for example, they may have a lot of emotional investment on in how things are done because maybe that's how they set it up when there was 10 of them in a room. And now they're a 500 person company and that stuff just doesn't scale in the same way. And so it's important to take a step back um, or people who've been in the role for a long time and think, well, I know my customer and this is what they want. And that may not be what they want. Or there could be a flaw at some part of the process where we've seen this many times when you say one thing in your marketing and then the actual experience is something else. But, you know, it looks really good in your click through rate. So they're going to keep doing that. Meanwhile, they're not thinking about, you know, lifetime value, for example, down the road. If you can do something in your marketing, that means that people are going to stay with you six months longer. Maybe it means that your click through rate is going to go down or your sign up rate will go down a little bit. But in the long term, you're making more money because you're spending less on ads because your click through rate is lower. And those people are staying around longer because you're giving the right message. And so that's where all those different pieces really do need to talk together. So you've got the right, everybody has to be at the same table with this. Yeah, and I think this is a very important concept to, to, to talk about and to repeat. And it sounds so simple, right? It's all about, it starts with the people you're selling it to, right? And then you mm -hmm. make decisions based on their, like, their best interest. Like whatever problems they have, you try to find a solution that suits them, that you can make money off, but that you're not trying mm -hmm. to like uh, take advantage of. And it just blows my mind every time I talk about these things. To, to, to people like you uh, who know their stuff. It's like, I, I really don't understand how else they're supposed to do uh, this. But in my small career so far, I can see how easily you can drift from beliefs that yes, you need to give a shit about your users to being siloed into your own small departments, forgetting about people altogether because the only thing you're doing is looking at screens every day and analytics reports. And you completely mm -hmm. forget that at the end of the day, those dots in your analytics report are actually people. And it's actually, so there's a big difference between what people believe and what they actually do and the type of companies they have to work for. Um, mm -hmm. So let's do a small exercise together. I mean, it's not going to be very small, actually. It's, it's quite... Uh, a big one, but let's try mm -hmm. to, to, to understand and go through a step-by-step -step kind of process to implement or to start thinking about user-centered design. Let's not talk a scenario that is outside digital marketing. I think we can pick something that mm -hmm. is more in the digital world that will be a bit simpler. But So let's say you work with a client and you really realize that they are siloed, as you mentioned before. They don't focus on the user. They focus on anything but the user. Mm -hmm. How do you go about implementing this user-centered design uh, in their yep. company? What is the first step? Uh, you have to go right to the top. So you have to start with the CEO, the president, the board, GM, whatever that leadership group is. And you have to get buy-in from all those people because you cannot, this can't be a top-up, sorry, bottom-up process. This has to be a top-down process because there's a reason why things are flawed. And unfortunately, that means that somebody probably in a leadership role isn't doing what they should be doing. You know, at some point they made a bad decision and here we are. And it's really difficult for people to step back and say, yeah, I really screwed up or we really missed the opportunity on this because it's a really difficult conversation to have. And I find that that's why when we as an agency go in, um, we have a lot of freedom where we can say to the president, you know, this is really awful. Here are 12 reasons, 12 reasons why. Here's the things that you need to fix, you know, are you willing to fix this? And at that point, sometimes we're not even giving them a quote. We're just telling them this is what the problem is. Are you ready to actually commit to fixing it? 
And sometimes in that meeting, they'll say, oh, yeah, totally. We're really committed to it. And then they'll drag their heels on actually doing anything. It's like, OK, well, never mind. We're going to walk away. This is actually, as an aside, part of the reason why we like being a small agency is that it's OK to go into a meeting and just be really honest with people and blunt with them and tell them this is what's bad and this is what needs to be fixed. And if they don't get their backs up about it, great. You know, and then we can actually start to fix things. But sometimes things need to, get, need to get really bad before they're willing to actually take a step back and say, all right, maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And for a lot of people, that is a really difficult thing to do. So you have to start there and you have to be willing to have those difficult conversations. So if you are, you know, marketing assistant number six and there's four levels above you, then if you're sitting in that office trying to figure that out, then that's harder because you have to start and you do have to work your way up to the president. So in that sort of situation, you do have to start pulling data and doing little tests and seeing how if we did this thing differently or let's do this cohort analysis, which is also a great thing to start with and figuring out like where are we doing a disservice to our customers and really just keep pushing that stuff up. Eventually, something's going to happen. But then you would have to get buy-in from your boss, who would then have to work on your behalf to get buy-in from their boss and so on until you got buy-in from the top. And then it needs to flow down from there. Because this isn't just a marketing thing. This is a everything thing. This is, you know, marketing is 1% of everyone's job, sometimes more. Uh, you know, if you pick up, if you're the person answering the phone, it's more than 1% of your job. You are the face of the organization. And I think that is something that has to come down from the top where the CEO has to say, okay, look, this is what we're doing and this is why it's important. And everyone has to be there for that. Right. So that's so the first step is that buy-in. It sounds like, it sounds like this is, this isn't first step. I think it is second step because you mentioned gathering data and you mentioned, I talked mm -hmm. to, I would go to the, to the, to the leadership and I would tell them what the problem is. It sounds like you kind of need to understand what the problem is in the first place. Well, you would know right? what the problem is because you would have bad returns in some way, right? Where you're implementing marketing plans and they just aren't working the way you want them to, the way you expect them to. You're probably missing targets, for example. So you already have this data because you're doing a bad job. You know, and maybe it's not you doing a bad job. Maybe you have fantastic SEO and you're ranking really well for all the stuff you're supposed to be ranking for. And then people sign up and then they are horrified and leave, for example, or they're leaving you bad reviews. Like at some point there's a disconnect. And so that's where the data is going to tell you where that disconnect is. And then you can go up and say, all right, so we need to do a major overhaul to fix these particular issues. So where do you spot the disconnect? How do you spot it though? Um, this is where you need to look at all the different systems, not just your little area. So thinking about, for example, a lot of people spend a ton of money on Facebook posts, just boosting Facebook posts. And one of the things that we see is, all right, is this actually a good value for your money? And so we can take a look at uh, a metric which we actually just introduced at MozCon called content consumption, which can measure if someone has spent long enough on a page to read the content on that page. And in addition, if they scroll down to the bottom of the content, if both these things are true, it measures it in Google Tag Manager, then it fires off a custom metric that we call content consumption. And so what we look at is for those boosted posts, are they being consumed? Are people leaving right away? Because time on site, as you may know, is a really bad metric because time on site only works if someone goes to a second page of the site. And if you're boosting posts to say you're already audience, they know who you are, they don't need to go to a second page, are they actually reading that content? And if they're not, okay, we have a disconnect where the content isn't very good. Where are they bailing? And then you can start to do a little bit more digging and see where the problems are. So this is where you probably have, and honestly, when I talk particularly the in-house marketers, they know stuff's bad. You know, they know things are bad and they know that there's these situations going on. They just don't know how to get from everything is terrible to we have a plan. And so that's where at least you can go. To, it, it, it may not necessarily be your job to come up with we have a plan, right? 
it may be your job just to say everything is terrible and just start raising up flags and flares from there and say, please pay attention to what's going on here because we're spending all this money on our ad buy. We're spending all this money on offline advertising and we aren't seeing the ticket sales or the software signups or the whatever it is that you're doing that we should be. What is the disconnect? And then you can start to really look at your data and see that user behavior patterns bearing out in your analytics. And then from there, you can say, all right, so obviously we're either targeting the wrong people, which if you're done your research, you don't think you would be, or there's some other disconnect in some part of the process that's causing people to turn away. So this this is an amazing example. You just mentioned the content conception metric, which is uh, which is an interesting way to look at what the user is doing from an analytics point of view, and not only like mm -hmm. just these, those metrics that don't mean anything. So that's quite interesting. Have you published anything online about this exact? Uh, yeah, there's a blog post on our website that explains uh, how it works, and we have the actual Google Tag Manager code that you can go ahead and implement. Um, we've built it for WordPress and we've included some examples if you are on another CMS um, and we've built some implementations for clients who are on custom or even um, ASP, uh, ASPX CMSs as well. So it can work on anything because it runs through Google Tag Manager. So you don't need to do anything in your CMS itself. You just have to have Google Tag Manager on the site and you just need to know what, what you're going to measure and how. Uh, right. And then once you have those variables, anyone can do it. So we'll add that to the to the show notes, uh, making sure mm -hmm. that uh, listeners can can check it out. It's definitely in the episode page if you're checking the episode today. Um, okay, so that's one example that is really practical and that shows the the, the difference between tracking useless metrics and actually tracking metrics related to what people are actually doing and to identify the problems that that are, are like staring at your face. Um, mm -hmm. Can you share any other? examples from your experience, any things that usually screams at you that says, you know, you're doing, a sh you're not doing user-centered design, you're not talking to users. You mentioned like lo no, not a lot of sales or, or low conversions, but like from your experience, what tend to happen the most? Yeah, I think it's people come in with really high expectations on where sales are going to go. And then there's no actual reality in terms of what happens. So sometimes we'll ask people, you know, last year, did you hit your sales goals? No. How much did you miss them by? Oh, we missed them by $300,000. Okay, well, that's, you know, a third of your estimates. Why did that happen? And if they don't have a good answer, okay, so now we're talking about a disconnect in that way. And that would be where, like, what are those sales numbers based on? Do people actually want to buy what you have to sell? No, you haven't done that research. You know, it's uh, it's interesting when you work with some organizations who, for example, if you're a concert hall and you're putting on shows, have you done the research to make sure that people are actually going to want to go see the show that you're putting on, for example? And if you think about it from a concert promoter perspective, you know, they're not dumb. They know where artists are going. And they pay attention to things like streaming services. You know, is an artist really popular streaming in a particular area? If they are, great, we're going to make them go out there on tour, even though it may not look like it makes sense. You know, so for example, here in Edmonton, we don't necessarily get a lot of big acts all the time because touring in Canada is very expensive and we're pretty far up north. Uh, and so people don't necessarily want to come up here. But we had ACDC come by. Why? Because they had streamed a ton here in Edmonton and there's classic rocks really popular here. And the concert was really uh, well attended, even though it was freezing. I'm pretty sure it snowed. So it wasn't. And so that's where that data leads you. And so people like if you look at the music industry, they've obviously recovered from streaming quite well. But concerts have always been profitable for people. So look at those industries that have gone through this cataclysmic change and come out the other side and are still making money. What are they doing? And they take that data and they do that research. Um, and it's really easy to tell 
which industries do sit down and do their research on who's interested in what. Right. Uh, and you can see that in a lot of different campaigns. So let's say, let's say we know where the, the issue is, like, and we know mm -hmm. that, okay, we don't have enough sales. We know that we have no fucking clue why, uh, why people should buy from us and we don't use mm -hmm. their, their, their voice and we don't use the words they would use and, and our experience yep. is shitty and all of that. So we know that. Mm -hmm. Now, I would, that's step one to me, right? Because step two is then yep. to getting buy-in. I think that simplifies mm -hmm. it. So you get buy-in or you try to get buy-in. I, I had a few listeners contacting me about example, like, we have this email list of 10,000 people and uh, our open rate is abysmal, like 10%. I know why, mm -hmm. because people are completely disengaged. Most of them, like most of the emails bounce back and nobody gives a shit about, about what we do mm -hmm. apart from those 10%. But my mm -hmm. boss doesn't want to clean the list, right? Which is, it's a small example, but yeah, this person that was a perfect example, though. couldn't yeah. get the boss to agree, right? And at the end, I replied to the email and I said, have you tried that? She said, yes. Have you tried that? She said, yes. At the end, I said, I think you need to move, to move on, right? Mm -hmm. It's time to move on. So from, from your experience, how do you convince people to change at leadership? And if, if you can't, what, what do you expect people to do? Yeah, I mean, it's we have a bit of freedom not being that employer where we can come in and say, are you actually happy with this information? You know, are you happy with how this is? Because if they say, oh, well, I, you know, I'm not happy that there's only a 10% open rate on this mailing list. Say, great, these are the changes I want to make. Well, I don't want any of those changes. Okay, well, you have a choice. Either you're happy with the 10% or you're willing to make these changes. If neither are true, then you are irrational. You're making irrational decisions. And at that point, yeah, go look for a new job. <laughs> Sometimes after talks, people will come up to me with their problems. Um, one person had their, their boss had their entire call center Googling some keywords every 10 minutes oh. and recording the rankings. And I said, you need to find a new job like that. <laughs> that is not, that's horrible. Oh, and it's, and she talked to this person and he just was not convinced that this was rank tracking software is useless. The only way we can do this is by using the call center. And she explained incognito and personalization. He was having none of it. It's like, you know what? You tried, you should just move on. And I honestly think that that's the thing is that these bad companies with bad owners who aren't willing to take a step outside themselves are going to end up with bad marketers. And you know what? That's okay. We can't fix everybody. We were, I was just tweeting about this recently because someone was saying about, you know, these um, mastermind classes where they sell a whole bunch of crap to people and, you know, learn these secrets and this one weird trick. And, you know, if people are going to pay for that and they're going to get fooled by that, you know, they can, if they choose to see the error of their ways and decide to do things properly later, that's great. But if they refuse to accept that maybe that isn't the right way, like you can't, change people's minds. You can't make people feel a certain way. So they have to be open to change in the first place. And so in those kinds of situations, this is, this is what you ask is, you know, have you brought this up to senior leadership? No, because I don't know the right words to say. Okay. So then we have a situation where great, we can help you find those right words to say and the right ways to convince them. But if you said yes, and I've tried this and this and this, and we can't think of anything else and it's not going to work out. You know, and it doesn't matter how awesome your team is, because if you have that kind of cruft up at the top that isn't going to let go, then your team is also isn't going to stay there for very long either. You know, and that sort of thing is terrible for morale. And that is one of the big differences between successful companies and not successful companies is, is the leadership team actually willing to accept that they don't know everything and is willing to take actual advice from someone and not just someone flashy, but someone who actually knows their stuff. Right. So let's assume that. Leadership was actually quite knowledgeable, or at least they were open to change that they knew they had mm -hmm. to change some stuff to make, to make stuff happen. So mm -hmm. now you're, you're in there and, and you, you know, the problems 
that need to be solved. And you started to hint at something that I think we can touch on, which is the research side of things. And you naturally speak about it and you naturally take examples and stuff. But it sounds simple like this, but at making doing research, which might be step mm -hmm. three, I'm not too sure what you're going to say. Is, is it, it is going to be step three. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you approach research as a whole? Because like, it's a big fucking deal, right? It's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah, and I think if you if it is an enormous thing because you have all sorts of different divisions and clients and everything else, like maybe just start with one little thing. Um, I'm really a big fan of trying, say, taking 10% and making a change and seeing what happens, for example. So you could say, all right, so out of all of these different things that we do, uh, one client of ours is apartment rentals, for example. One building is having a hard time converting. There's a building that converts really well. They never have a problem with vacancies there. Okay, great. We don't need to worry about that building. You know, that building is fine. So let's not worry about that one. Let's worry about this one specific thing that seems to be our problem child. So what is it? Is it location? Is it bad photos? interview people who have gone to check it out and decided not to rent it, for example, you know, talk to leads who decided not to close with you and ask them for feedback and not from your salesperson. Particularly if you have, say, enterprise software and they're salespeople and they walk people through the demo process and they follow up a thousand times and eventually they get a no, like what was actually the feedback? And sometimes people can be really forthcoming if they know they're talking to someone who isn't a salesperson at the organization. You know, someone who's a marketer and they want real, honest feedback. Um, and we did this once for a chamber of commerce and we called people who'd left the chamber and said, why? And boy, we got some stories, you know, but they all had a lot in common, which was the chamber wasn't actually taking their needs into consideration and wasn't listening to what they had to say. They were just representing the views of one small group of users. Okay. So after these phone calls and talking to people, you get to, you get to know some of the stuff. This is one of the things we really like doing is actually picking up the phone and calling people and talking to them. And then the other half of it is this cohort analysis where you can take, say, all the email addresses of everyone who's ever bought from you or signed up for download a white paper but didn't end up converting and run it through a tool like Full Contact, for example, and look at their social information and find out what sorts of things they enjoy and they like and what are the ways in which you can speak to them in using the kinds of phrases that they use. Who are the influencers in the market? Who are, who are they paying attention to? You know, so you can have the best marketing in the world, but if everyone thinks that, you know, this person over here, everything they say is gold, then maybe you have to get that person on your side instead of trying to convert these hundred of other people over here who only listen to the word of this one person. So those so, are the kind of research has to do. You said so many things here. Uh, I know, sorry. No, 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 <laughs> but that's my job. So let's break it down. So let's, yeah. the first yeah. step is this, I, I like this very like qualitative type feedback where you actually talk to people, which is a grandiose idea, isn't it? It's like, it's like 2018 uh, idea. Um, it's insane that we still talk about this kind of thing. Anyway, um, yes, talking to people actually, ma actually makes sense. Um, so you said something interesting. You said talk to people who actually ended up not doing what you wanted them to do in a sense, right? So talk to people who ended up not converting. Um, I think it's also interesting to, to talk to people who actually ended up converting and understand why. But from my small experience, I would say that the, the former is more powerful. Like why didn't people do what you want them to do? So if you have to pick one or two questions that you always kind of like to ask during these interviews, what are they? Like, what do you like to ask? Um, it actually does depend on where we find that the disconnect is. Um, so let's say, for example, if we're trying to figure out if we should invest more in social media for someone, um, then we would ask things like, what makes you want to share something on social media with your friends? 
Uh, sometimes if we're trying to tell the level of sophistication of someone, we'll say, do you know how many Twitter followers you have? If they don't know, they probably aren't a Twitter power user because people who spend a lot of time on Twitter always know how many followers they have approximately. Right? How many photos you have? Uh, about 8,000. So, <laughs> so it's, that's the kind of information that people pay attention to, right? So other things could be, you know, what, what kind of things do you pay attention to now? So we'll ask people, like, what kind of events do you go to? Uh, if it's a client, for example, it's a concert hall client we're working with, like what kind of music festivals do you go to in town? You know, what are the radio stations you listen to? And also why, you know, what makes you want to go and see something? And often people will be pretty forthcoming with their answers. Um, I would say when you start doing this process, if it's your first time doing it, the first couple of interviews are probably going to go awkwardly and that's okay because you need to get comfortable talking on the phone. And not many people are comfortable talking on the phone, you or them. So that's fine. Uh, but definitely don't have a set set of questions. Just really let the conversation flow and then take notes after each call and figure out how you can make the next conversation go better based on what you learned in the previous conversation. So we usually will have a set set of questions and then a decision tree. OK, so if they said this, we might want to ask about this. But often uh, when we're doing the calls, we'll really just try to let the conversation flow naturally and definitely try to keep it to 15 minutes or under. You really want to respect the person's time um, and, of course, ask permission to record it. If it's a place where you have to ask permission to record it, it's always really important. Even if you don't use the recording, sometimes it's nice when you're thinking, oh, somebody said something and now I can't remember what it was. It's always good to have those recordings to go back to it later on. And it also is good for you to get used to the sound of your own voice because that's something again that people are really uncomfortable with. But one, at some point, you're going to want to hear yourself. Um, and I think that that's when you do these conversations, definitely make sure that you're asking the right kind of questions that people see how they respond. And if you can do a face to face, that's even better because then you can see their body language. You can see how they feel when they're answering the question on the phone. It's a little bit trickier unless you're using something like FaceTime. Yeah, that's an amazing, amazing answer. Um, I would add to that instead of rushing to take notes at the end of the call, uh, definitely record it and get it transcribed, right? So that's mm -hmm. one thing that I that we do is um, we'll have two people on calls uh, at all times, just in case. Like I ask a question and my colleague would think of something else, and she she could uh, or they they could uh, ask for more, and then having the recording, mm -hmm. so none of us worry about uh, taking notes, and we have the full transcript, and it's just then. You know, mm -hmm. you free up your mind to, okay, I only listen. Uh, and the other thing... Well, and I yes. would say one thing, though, for that is sure. try not to be on speakerphone because I find that people really hate speakerphone and conversations will go a lot shorter than they should just because you may, they may seem fine to you, but they probably can't hear you at all. So if you are doing the two-person method, try to have, uh, you know, mics or something so it sounds a little bit better to yeah. them. Yeah, I like what I'm, uh, what we're doing and what I used to do is, is like using Skype or Zoom or, or any mm -hmm. video call solution and have three people in. Yeah. Uh, this way it's easier. Um, but yes, act, acting, like, acting like a journalist instead of a salesperson. So one mm -hmm. thing that I found super easy, uh, super good to do, like from the start of an interview is to say, listen, I'm not trying to sell you anything whatsoever. Mm -hmm. I'm only here to understand you, what you do, like your problems. And, and people love to talk about themselves, right? So it's not as if they'd be like, mm, no, I'm not sure. No, they love this. So okay. as long as you frame it into, listen, I really want to know more about you, then uh, it's very rare that people will say, no, fuck off. So um, mm -hmm. thanks for sharing that. So that was the first part of your answer. And the second part mm -hmm. is even 
I would say more interesting because we are getting into the nitty gritty and specific tactics that you use that I'm not sure many people use. So Ran Fishkin, who was on the on the podcast last year, mentioned something quite similar uh, about influencer and understanding who influence who. And in fact, he's starting a startup like SparkToro mm-hmm. about this exact problem: how to identify influencers or rather people who mm-hmm. influence you and people you give a shit about. So, how mm-hmm. do you go about this? Because you started to mention cohort analysis, going to full contact. So you will actually mm-hmm. export a list of contacts of emails that you have and try to understand who they are, who is the person behind the email. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And full contact gives you that information. I'm actually really hopeful that SparkToro may end up being a tool that we can use to this because it is a manual process now. It kind of sucks. Uh, it takes a lot of time. And sometimes, for example, if we get an email list and it's got 20,000 people on it, we run it through full contact. Now we've got 10,000 people with full social profiles. Like, ooh, that's nobody's going to want to click on all those people. And there isn't really a tool where we can upload a whole bunch legitimately through <laughs> actual proper channels, upload a bunch and do that. And we don't do that stuff. So, I mean, yes, people listening, I'm sure you might have a tool that will let you do that. You should not be using it. Um, so that's why I'm hoping that something like SparkToro will help to close that gap. And I have actually emailed Rand a little bit about like, here's what we do now. It's terrible. Please help. <laughs> so I don't know if this tool will fix it or not. That'd be great if it did, because it is a manual process. And some yeah. of it is where we go through the list and say, all right, so we know that we have these, you know, 100 users on Twitter who are pretty prolific what are they talking about? Who are they sharing? Is there someone in common? And so you can take people um, individually. If you have some individual users that you decide represent your standard persona, and then you can put them in a tool such as BuzzSumo, and then you can see what sorts of sources they share regularly, who they generally interact with. Uh, Follower Wonk is another good tool for this kind of information. So that can be a good place to start as well. But really what you're trying to get at this point is the kind of information that people share on social media that they won't tell you on the call, because I think a lot of people share stuff on social media and they don't think about it. So, for example, if you run my my profile through BuzzSumo, I'm pretty sure most of my links shared are from The Verge, but I don't talk about The Verge. It's just something that I share their information from because I think that's a good publication. Right. Um, And I'm always looking at it because I'm coming up with ideas for my technology column that I do on the radio every Monday. So this is where it's like something I would never mention in a phone interview. If you said, where do you go for news? I would forget about The Verge. I wouldn't mention it. I know that. But on BuzzSumo, if you look at my profile, The Verge is something like 30% of the links that I share. Okay. So clearly, you know, humans are valuable. And I think this is where the data really needs to back up those conversations as well. Yeah. And and humans like to make themselves look good, right? So Mm -hmm. they wouldn't admit that they spend half of their day on Reddit, um, and they like to be smart and say, you know, actually, I, I look at all those marketing blogs and this is what all I read. And and mm-hmm. yes, when you see what actu- people actually do instead of what they say they do, it's usually the difference is quite massive. Um, yeah. But interesting, an interesting point to make here, because every episode that I record with with, with marketers and, uh, and people like you is that I try to think, OK, let's say Bussumo and SparkToro and all of that, they don't exist in five years. Mm-hmm. Is this principle, is the thing we're talking about here is still relevant in five, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. And the answer is absolutely fucking lutely, right? It's not because social media is, is, is on right now and, and everyone is on it and, and use it that, um, like in five years, 10 years, you will still need to understand who you're selling to, who mm-hmm. influenced them, what they care about, what words they use, regardless of the channel or the format or, or the, or whatever else. Mm-hmm. Right. So yep. I'm glad you mentioned a few tools, but I also want to make the point. It doesn't really matter 
it, the principle behind it is what matters. So yeah. once you have, let's say, those most profitable customers and you understand who influenced them, like really those, those people that matter the most to you and those key personas, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. what do you do with this information? Like, how do you action this? So we typically put together a list of, you know, interesting things you should know about your audience. And that is, um, did you know that, you know, they really like these particular pages or this is something that people mentioned a lot or just sort of facts that we didn't know before we started doing this research and sharing it with the client. And sometimes at this point they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, that makes a lot of sense or, oh, wow, I didn't see that coming. And that's really good information for us to know, too, because then it's like, okay, well, if you knew this already, why weren't you doing that? (laughs) You can ask that kind of information. Um, And then at that point, that's the basis of building our personas. And so the personas, of course, people are like, oh, I don't need personas. Well, personas often I find are based on, you know, fake people that you just made up. Our personas are based on real, actual research that you do. So this is the basis of your persona. It's based on real research. And not only is it based on real research, but that's measurable. So we know that this persona is going to do these things and we can set up, say, a segment in Google Analytics or some other tracking method that will be able to segment these personas into different buckets in your analytics so you can understand if the behaviors that you think these personas are going to take is actually bearing out in reality of what these personas are taking. And if it isn't, you know, again, you've got to disconnect there. Is it because your research was faulty or because the flow on your website currently is faulty, for example? And then that can help you identify disconnects. And so we do have a blog post on our website as well that walks through our persona process. Uh, it's called Why Use Personas. I, I'm sure you'll include the link in the show notes as well. But uh, and there's also a video that I did at Learn Inbound in Dublin in 2017 um, that walks through the process as well. So I'd recommend people watch that if they want to learn how to do personas. Teaching people how to do personas is a, another podcast all on its own, but it's, uh, it's an important part of this process because those are the users and the user-centered design. So then when you're thinking about the decisions that you're going to make, you're writing and making decisions for that one person, you know? Um, I heard once that BuzzFeed has two specific personas. They have a woman who's recently out of university, has her first professional job, is like one or two years out of school, is feeling a little bit disconnected from the social networks that she had when she was in university and stays on BuzzFeed to keep up with what's going on. And that person, that woman's mom, those are the two personas. And that makes a lot of sense. And so if you look at BuzzFeed and in that light, the decisions that we make, they make will make a ton of sense, right? And I think that that's something where they have these really strong personas and they stick to them. And so this can also help you with decisions when, you know, somebody comes in, this is my favorite, you know, the VP goes off to a marketing conference and comes back and is like, oh, this is really cool. We should totally do this. Well, do your personas want that? Does your brand voice bear it out? Is this a good fit for your already existing strategy? You know, are you just slapping something on because it seemed new and cool because somebody persuasive talked about it at a conference? And so this can really give you some ammunition if you do have that kind of leadership who gets all fired up after they go to a conference and they want to try out something new. And that can help you be like, okay, simmer down. You know, <laughs> this is why we can't do that. Or here. this is why this isn't a good fit for us. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I found that to be extremely effective. And it's it's funny because as long as as soon as you do personal research that is a buyer personal research based on behavior, mm-hmm. not only demographics, which I like because mm-hmm. that's what you mentioned as well. Uh, that's what we mentioned in a podcast before with Adele Revela from the Buyer Persona Institute, which is mm-hmm. which is exactly what they do. Uh, and this the concept of persona, not just demographic data put together mm-hmm. into this 
fake name and fake uh, photo. It's it's what people do as well, what make them successful. Um, so, okay, we've talked about that extensively in a few episodes. So I'm glad we can we can uh, move on to the next step. And I think we, I'm not sure we'll have time for more than the next step. But let's say we now have those buyer persona mm-hmm. identified, like BuzzFeed with those two two personas. What is the next step towards this user-centered design? Like, what do you usually yep. tend to do? Now you have to turn to your analytics setup and you have to figure out how you're going to be able to measure those personas. So are there certain pages that one persona will visit versus another persona? Is there search terms, for example, that they'll be doing? Figure out how you can configure your analytics software. And I'm assuming you're using probably some combination of analytics and tag manager, or maybe using Adobe. There's a lot of different behavior targeting you can do, particularly when it comes to things like custom dimensions and custom metrics that will help you capture those additional pieces. Um, so, for example, if you have a really strong path that makes you know that this person is this persona and this person's this other persona, then put that in analytics as a custom uh, as a custom dimension. Yeah, and then you can segment by those different personas and see if they're doing what you expect them to do. Because at this point, you're not necessarily making changes unless there's some sort of horrible red flag that's come up, and you know immediately if you do this one thing, things will get things will get better. Easy win in that way. Go ahead and do that. But generally now you're implementing, you're making sure that you can track and you're establishing a baseline for yourself because you need that baseline in order to know if the changes you're making are actually going to help you. And then that's the next step is is figuring out that baseline, knowing that this is where I think they should be doing, but this is what they're actually doing. And I know I can accurately measure this. And now when I make my changes, then I can go back and say, did this help or hurt? Right. Um, and without that baseline, then you really don't know if you're effective in the changes that you're making. So outside of pages, like, let's say, I would call it a use case page, right? Where mm-hmm. where you say, you sell, let's say your your agency website, let's say you have two pages, one that says for marketers and the other one for business owners, right? Mm-hmm. So let's, we, what you would do is that you assume that people visiting one of the two pages, like the marketing, mm-hmm. the marketer page is a marketer yeah. or someone related to that and vice versa for the, for the business owner. What mm-hmm. other type of behavior do you usually see uh like to be used in in understanding who they are when they visit your website like what what type of other stuff do you tend to use um so something you probably could find out from your research is say what kind of con how they like to read content so do they prefer video do they prefer downloading a pdf do they prefer reading on the web so that could be something that you would measure for example so are there more pdf downloads for the specific persona versus another Um, We found this out actually for a client of ours who's a convention center and one of their personas are wedding planners. And we found that wedding planners actually like to submit uh, multiple forms at once for all the different weddings that they're planning. So they were screwing up our analytics because you can only have one goal per session and they would actually be filling out the form like six times. So great. So we need to have a different method for and we only saw this when we looked at the unique events versus the number of goal completions and the number was off like okay something's going on here and then going back we actually did um recordings of the site using full story so we can actually watch what people are doing like a hot jar is another tool that can do this for example and then we could see them going back and filling out the form again and again okay so we need to have a different process if you're a wedding planner for example so then that tells us now we have this baseline of what they're doing now how can we improve that and so we knew they were already interested Um, And they would download a lot of PDFs, for example. So one of the things that we weren't tracking is we were tracking when people were downloading PDFs, but we weren't necessarily considering that to be a goal. So let's change that and make this PDF download for the specific set persona segment only a goal 
And you can do that through Google Tag Manager. Uh, another client of ours, we realized that people were taking forever to buy tickets. This is for a concert hall because they would check with their friends. Hey, do you want to go see so-and-so? Okay, great. You know, which date do you want to go? Okay, where do you want to sit? Okay, how many of us are going? Okay, there's six of us. Okay, everybody send me the money. I'm going to buy the tickets. So that's four separate sessions that have all happened more than a half hour apart. So now you've got four sessions and one purchase. So it looks like you have a 25% conversion rate. Sessions don't convert. Users do. So actually, it's a 100% conversion rate for that user. So we changed over their metrics from focusing on session-based conversions to user-based conversions. Obviously, it isn't completely foolproof because if you're on a different device, Google doesn't necessarily recognize users between devices. That's fine. They know the limitations. But it's really helped them figure out, okay, so when we look at, say, a Facebook ad, this conversion rate looks really bad. Well, it's because people are coming like 18 times before they actually buy from Facebook. So what is it with Facebook? And one issue that we diagnosed was a technical issue on their website where people would log in with Facebook and would actually delete their cart. And so that's why people from Facebook were having a much harder time converting than people who came from any other channel. And it wasn't something flawed with Facebook itself. It was actually something that was broken on their website. And again, we only saw that once we start to dig into Facebook people specifically and say, what is the problem here? And look at that specific persona and say, why are they struggling? So this is where you really need to look at that data. And you really don't want to look at too much data at once. I would say pick a segment that you feel like you can have the biggest benefit and just start working on that specific segment. Um, and then once you're done with that, once you've got them to a point where you're happy with them, then you can move on to the next one. Especially if you're a solo marketer, you really can't tackle everything at once. And it's best too for your own headspace to be able to get deeply into one person at a time before you move on to the next one. So you're not trying to balance, oh, is this this persona or this persona? You've just got the one that you need to worry about. Yeah, I think this it's a strong case of FOMO most of the time. Marketers want to try to do everything at once and their boss tells them, but what about this? What about that? So I 100% mm -hmm. agree. Select, like focus on your most important buyer persona, uh, focus mm -hmm. on your most biggest the most important biggest problem mm -hmm. and let's try to solve this problem for them and and if you make this happen if you make changes that actually solve it then you're gonna have a much bigger impact than trying to wander around and i think mm -hmm. we do have more time for the next step so i, I want to quickly okay. a bit more on this but i want to i want to say like this is quite amazing the 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 ability that that you have and the knowledge you have to translate real user behavior like what people actually do into analytics tracking you know tracking analytics in the right way like i i think it's mm -hmm. quite rare to talk to someone who who knows both who understand the user and who understand the analytics so that's why you're speaking everywhere uh, at conferences i suppose <laughs> well i've also been doing this a long time i yeah. honestly think it's because i've been doing this for 18 years and i think that that makes a huge difference um i started using analytics back when it was urchin so <laughs> i've been doing this wow. a long time and i think a lot of people do ignore i gotta say in all the analytics profiles I've ever gotten from every company I've ever worked with in my life, only one of them had custom metrics set up properly when I looked at it. No one else did. And I mean, if you're sitting there struggling, think about oh, this data isn't doing it for me. Well, is it set up properly? And there's definitely more data that you can get. Like, don't just limit yourself to the basics of what analytics gives you. Start to do stuff like learning Google Tag Manager. Um, oh, and if you are in the Dublin area or planning to come to Learn Inbound, I am doing a Google Tag Manager workshop. Uh, the day before the conference, if you would like to come and learn um, all the nerdy things that, uh, <laughs> that I can teach you about Google Tag Manager. Yeah. 
I actually live in Dublin, uh, as you might know, and uh, mm-hmm. I I will go to Learn Inbound. So yes, everyone listening, uh, whether they want to go, um, they are in Europe or not, I would definitely recommend people to go to Learn Inbound um, and check them out because they're really good. Um, so, okay, let's say we set up the right analytics, uh, the right metrics, the right custom metrics. Mm-hmm. We're able to track at least one or key by your persona, what they do. What is usually the next step? You started to talk about making changes. What do you usually see happening after that? Yeah, so hopefully you see a positive change, you know, but uh, you need to decide on a few key metrics that are really going to be your, you know, canary in a coal mine for this particular movement. Um, And again, this is something that I actually just talked about at MozCon is the idea of we need to cut reports down to the bare, bare basics of what we need. Because I find that we often firehose people with data, particularly senior leadership, in the hopes that they'll find something valuable in there, when really you could probably just boil it down to, say, three key metrics, for example. So decide what those three key metrics are going to be and really focus on that and nothing else. And the other thing, too, that I really want people to start thinking about is the difference between reporting and monitoring. Reporting is what what has happened and what insights can you bring from this. And monitoring is, as it happens, actual tracking of what's going on. So a good example is, for example, and this happens, every agency person is going to say, oh, yeah, this happened to me, is you get to the end of the month, you look at the report, you realize that they've lost 20% organic traffic that month. There's no reason for it. It's not seasonal. You don't know what's going on. So you have to give this client this kind of crappy report that says, hey, your organic traffic is down 20%. We don't know why. We'll get back to you, right? Like nobody wants to do that. That's a bad, bad time. Whereas if you had monitoring set up and you were actually like, say, pushing notifications to Slack or something that would say that organic traffic is going down. Uh, one report I really like is in Deep Crawl. They will tell you the number of pages that have had organic visits. If that starts to go down, that's usually a good sign that something's up. Then you can actually be proactive about it. And so monitoring really lets you do stuff faster than the regular reporting cycle. And I mean, in general, a month is a really weird artificial time period to choose for reporting. It's completely arbitrary. The months aren't even the same number of days. You know, if you compare August to February, that's bad, obviously. (laughs) So this is why do we report by months? I personally prefer uh, in Google Data Studio by default, they do 28 days. That's nice. That's a good time period. You do six weeks, for example, but really do start to try to do little changes to show people better reporting metrics. And I think that that helps a lot too. You say, you know what? This is the only three things we ever talk about when I give you this report. So I'm just going to cut it down to these three things. And if they ask for other stuff, then you can talk about why they feel they need that information. Because maybe you're not presenting it in the best way. And so they feel insecure that you're actually telling them what they need to know. So what is it that you can do about that report? Um, And I mean, a common theme in this conversation we've been having is a lot about egos and insecurity. And I find that that's a lot of what we end up dealing with is, you know, nobody's having a good time. Nobody's making any money. Things seem bad. And they've really got their own personal egos really wrapped up in it. And sometimes you just need to go in there and say, you know what, just just separate yourself from it. You know, try to be try to be Zen about it, get rid of your own ego and think about what's going to help the user. And I think that that's something where as a marketer, um, you do really need to be able to take yourself out of this equation and think about what's going to be best for other people. And maybe that means you're not the best solution for this. That's okay. Maybe that means that you didn't have the best ideas for this because you didn't truly understand the audience. That's okay too. You know, accepting that you have these flaws is an important part of making things better. And that's, yeah, otherwise you're just going to keep trying to hit everything with a hammer because everything looks like a hammer. 
think that's a great way to end this kind of step-by-step process, uh, Dana. Thank, thanks so much for going through these uh, in-depth explanations uh, throughout each step. I, I think listeners are got a lot of value uh, out of it. A lot of people would tell me and, and say that the, this podcast is the only podcast where they actually have to take a notepad and take notes. Um, so uh, thanks for doing that. But I have a few more questions uh, for you before you go. What do you think okay. marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, or even 50 years? I think every marketer should know some code. Code is going to change. Like maybe we won't be using JavaScript in 20 years. That'd be nice. Uh, but you should understand the principles behind code. Because in my life, I mean, you mentioned when I started coding, I started learning on BASIC on a Texas Instruments computer hooked up to my parents' TV. And I would program out of a book I took out of the library called How to Make Video Games in BASIC. And then I learned, you know, how to get around DOS and I learned Visual Basic. So I was doing a lot of Excel stuff in Excel 1.0. My first software job was at a Microsoft Access shop that made Microsoft Access software that did environmental reporting. My second job was for a uh, Lotus Notes company that made Lotus Notes customer relationship management software. Uh, and then I got into websites. So I've done a lot of different code in my life. But what I have is I personally am not a great coder. That's fine. But I can read and understand other people's code and know where it's going. And as a marketer, sometimes you don't have the programming resources for someone to explain it to you. Or again, if a programmer is feeling insecure about why you're questioning their decisions, they may not want to explain it to you. So you need to be able to understand that code. And I think that that is a really important skill because obviously it's been, you know, almost, well, geez, when I started coding, this is, it was a long time ago. It was over 30 years ago. And so code has changed a lot in that time, but I still know how to read code. And I think that that's a really valuable skill to have. Even if you start with basic, at least understand how programs do what they do and why they do what they do. And then you'll be able to read other people's code, no matter what language it's in. So based on that answer, or maybe not, uh, you pick, what are the top three resources you'd recommend our listeners? Um, if you are going to learn code, I would say use a site like Code Academy, for example, and just walk through um, their basic tutorials. I actually do find that JavaScript is a good coding language to learn because it does have HTML isn't really a coding language in the same way that something like JavaScript is, where there's logic and loops. And I think that's a really important language to learn. Um, and then if you want to do something a little bit more, you know, before you get into JavaScript, doing something a little bit more introductory, try playing out with playing with uh, Google Data Studio and doing some of the formulas there and manipulating data, especially uh, regex. That's a really useful thing to have is I think a lot of people are scared of regex. And yeah, it's awful. Whoever programmed, whoever made it originally, like was not thinking like a human. They were thinking like a robot. Regex is terrible. If you're going to come up with a replacement, please do. I would love to see it. Uh, but in the meantime, we're stuck with regex. So go in there and start doing data manipulations. And you really can't mess up your original data when you're creating custom fields. So you can just go hog wild and make whatever you want um, and try out some different stuff there. So I really like that as well. There isn't really a super great Google Data Studio resource site yet. There probably should be. But the forums are quite good. And I try to spend uh, time there as well answering questions. And yeah, I mean, there's lots of different places you can learn Code. Yeah, Code Academy is usually where I send people, to be honest. There's a few different places out there. Pick your favorite. So Code Academy, Google Data Studio. Is there mm -hmm. any like book or conference or anything else Ooh, that you well, usually recommend? Learn Inbound. <laughs> right. Learn Inbound is an awesome conference. If you're in Europe, you know, and if you're in North America, the flight is not that expensive. And Dublin is a very nice city. I do recommend going, even though it's a long flight. Um, I love the conference. I think that Mark has put together a fantastic lineup of speakers. He always does. And it's just a really well-run conference. 
Uh, and then, of course, in the U.S., MozCon, again, they really work hard on making a great lineup of speakers. If you are looking for something uh, where you want multiple tracks and you want to talk about a whole bunch of different things, SMX Advanced, specifically in Seattle, which happens in June, is another good one. Uh, and if you are more on the paid side of things, Brittany, who works here and does a lot of our paid work, went to HeroConf this past year, which was in Austin, I believe it's going to be in Philadelphia this upcoming year. And she, two thumbs up, loved it. So I recommend checking that out as well if you're on the paid side of things. Dana, thanks very much for, for your time today and for answering all my questions and, and for being understanding of my constant interruption. Where can <laughs> listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Uh, probably Twitter is the best place to go. So it's at Dana DiTomaso, which is super easy to spell. So <laughs> check the show notes. And of course, you can always Google me. Um, there's only two Dana DiTomasos, so Google usually figures it out no matter how much you spell, how badly you spell it. And the company is Kickpoint, and definitely check us out. And uh, we have a weekly newsletter that I do really love, and I think you should probably sign up for. Every Friday, we send out three digital marketing design articles that caught our interest this week, as well as a music pick, as well as something cute and adorable we found on the internet. So, and it's uh, it's really short, and uh, it's a nice way to keep up if you can't keep up on Twitter all the time. That sounds like a perfect newsletter to me. Uh, thanks, Dana, once again. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a one-to-one as -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always uns unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people would be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again, and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. 
Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.